Welcome back to Free Waves Live and Events Podcast, the show where we bring you inside, behind the scenes, and on the stage from Freight Waves Live Event. I'm your host, Tim Dooner, and today joining me is the man, the myth, the legend. It's Freight Waves CEO and founder, Greg Fuller. I'm so happy to be here. People who are listening, they heard you last week talk to Gary Vee in our Freight Waves flashback to Transparency 19. It made me wonder. What is your logic for going out and picking keynotes? Because I go to these like old-fashioned paywall company conferences, and it's always, you know, it's always some late-stage boomer talking about freight. They've been in the industry forever, and you seem to source outside the industry. It makes it really exciting. Well, I think it's you got to think about where transportation's at today. So transportation's going through this massive upheaval with companies coming. You know, a lot of venture capital-backed companies coming into the space. A lot of change is happening, and I think. If we only listen to people who've been in the industry for many, many decades, we're never going to learn anything about what this could look like. I think bringing people from outside of our industry that have a perspective on where these uh, industries evolve is going to be very beneficial to the audience. And it sort of helps us as an industry sort of understand what could become and what may become. And I think if you look at the pattern of whom we've picked, we pick wonderful storytellers. I like to get authors that can tell stories. True. Like I want uh, stories that are based in truth. So I like uh, people like Michael Lewis who have sort of orchestrated these stories around the uh, intersection of markets and technology and, and uh, business and politics. And so weaves it into uh, things like the Moneyball and Flash Boys of Freight. And we're able to sort of understand what that means. If you look at uh, what we've got coming up in, at Live, we have Ben Mesrick, who has written stories about the kids that bust down Vegas or uh, the foundational story of Facebook, which became uh, the movie Social Network. And so he he understands sort of these bigger-than-life characters that are sort of flawed that end up changing society. And I think those things are really, really captivating. We had Gary Vee, as we talked about. I mean, Gary Vee has a very sort of blunt instrument of communication, but it is very effective because it's straight to the point. And I think we all can learn something about that. I mean, Gary bootstrapped his business, but also has a very sort of can call BS on things that he doesn't find uh, favorable. What I thought was compelling was that each keynote did it a little bit differently. You sat down with Gary Vee. You had the fireside chat. Bradley Jacobs, he came out and he just open mic to the audience. Anybody could ask him questions. And the guy we're going to play today, David Rowan, he did more of a presentation style. Anything to, uh, any surprises in store for live? Well, I think we've got a fantastic lineup. We have industry professionals that have come from the industry. What we've tried to do is use less panels this time. Actually, I don't think we have any panels because really I'm trying to get into the depth. I think the most powerful conversations or we can actually go deep with somebody. And a lot of times at these conferences, these panels are very surface because you have three or four people on the same panel talking about the same topic. They tend to repeat. They tend to not step over each other. They tend to like say, oh, yeah, I agree with what he said. They sort of compile it. You don't get any depth. No. It's like I would rather someone who maybe isn't, the even though we have some very compelling speakers and some really successful people, I would like to get some perspective, even if it isn't, the most successful people in the industry, at least you're getting perspective. And I think perspective is important. And you, can, you can't you can get that. I mean, I do a lot of interviews. You do them as well, Dooner. Is it takes about eight minutes if you haven't met somebody. And I think for people to engage the audience, it takes about eight minutes to warm up that audience to sort of understand the story. And, and that's true in almost any kind of conversation. And so by the time you, if you think about a panel, you have a 30-minute panel or 20-minute panel. We only, we compound it 20 minutes to keep it fresh. But if you only have 20 minutes and you've got three panelists, that means each person's effectively getting five minutes because the moderator has five as well. You're never going to get depth. And I think depth is important. Uh, It keeps it fresh. It keeps it moving along. And if you have someone who's maybe not the best speaker or the most interesting speaker, they're done in 20 minutes. You've moved on. Yeah, yeah. I've been on the panels too, and you spend most of the time thinking about what you're going to say next, and then you don't get the opportunity. It sucks for the yeah. panelists too. Yeah, like, I know. <laughs> like having done, you know, I, I get invited to probably a hundred different speeches a, a, a year. If they're panels, I tend to not want to accept those invites because I just don't think as a panelist that I, I'm going to get much out of that. And I think it's it, it's sort of asking me to go participate, but then 
no one remembers you. If you're a panelist, it's very hard to stand out. Uh, yeah. And so it's sort of a waste of time for both a participant and someone in the audience. And so we tried to eliminate that. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Craig. We're going to take a Freight Waves flashback to David Rowan from Transparency 19 in Atlanta, day three. But first, here's what you're in store for at Freight Waves Live Chicago, the freight tech event of the decade. Freight Waves Live Chicago will provide the fuel you need to propel your business toward a successful future. Get your team ready for success in 2020 and beyond at the best freight conference the industry has ever seen. Featuring keynotes from Jordan Belfort, The Wolf of Wall Street, Howard Green, the author of Railroader, the book on Hunter Harrison, and Ben Menzrick, Craig Mentionum, best-selling author of Bringing Down the House, the inside story of six MIT students who took Vegas for millions. And if you've seen The Social Network, you know this one, The Accidental Billionaires, the founding of Facebook, and his latest Bitcoin Billionaires, a true story of genius, betrayal, and redemption, plus rapid-fire demos and the most amazing after-parties in the business. Go to FreightWaves.com now and click on Events. You can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and everywhere podcasts are heard around the world. Plus our new feed, a full trailer load of freight. It's FreightCast. Look up FreightCast on your favorite podcast player, and you can get every Freight Waves podcast all in one place, including What the Truck, For Freight's Sake, this show, Fuller Speed Ahead. We got it all. Subscribe today. We're going to take a Freight Waves flashback to David Rowan from Transparency 19 in Atlanta, day three. Good morning. It's um, amazing to be here. And what a great group of people getting up so early. I, um, I'm going to talk a bit about my world, which isn't the freight world. It's the world of the people trying to build the future. And I'm going to talk a bit about how they are seeing the opportunity in freight. So I set up the UK edition of Wired um, about 10 years ago, and Wired is the magazine about the people trying to build the future, not just in tech and science, but in design, in architecture, in business models. And since then, I got to know quite a lot of the startup entrepreneurs and became quite addicted and um, advising a whole bunch of them, investing bits of money in a few of them, trying to understand how they see the huge next step opportunity of taking what digital technologies are doing to all the existing incumbent businesses. And because it's happening to every single sector. And, you know, freight wasn't one of the first, but it's deep in it now, which means there are billions to be made if you can see the direction ahead. And if you can create the culture in your organization and the mindset that allow you to make the changes that build the new business models. Um, And that's one of the things I've just written a book about, as George said, it comes out next week. I went to about 20 countries looking for successful organizations. Some of them had been there for 100 years that have found a way to transform the business because of these new digital tsunami that are hitting. And I share examples from China, from Peru, from Europe, from Australia. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that mindset. But first, um, I'm just going to share some observations. I am not a futurist. I'm a journalist. I travel to lots of places to observe. And when I was working on this Freight Waves um, presentation, thinking about how quickly Freight Waves has grown because of an understanding of these changing needs, I bumped into and met a bunch of companies that made me reflect on how particular aspects of this industry are getting very excited. And the first one was in Norway, I met a fertilizer company called Yara, one of the biggest fertilizer companies in the world. And they had a problem. Their factory was not near the port where they export to the world. So they needed to use about 40,000 trucks every year. And they couldn't get the drivers. It was expensive. And it was polluting against their environmental stance. So a couple of years ago, senior management agreed to invest $40 million building an autonomous electric cargo ship. One of the first autonomous electric cargo ships. This is the model. It's called the Yara Berkeland. And it was a very unusual move for a fertilizer company, but it was solving a real problem. And they did a demo about 18 months ago in a swimming pool, 
and lots of media came, and it became quite big news inside Norway, so much so that lots of other Norwegian companies start calling Yara's management up and saying, hey, we have a similar problem. Could we pay you to use your autonomous electric cargo ship? And they realized they had IP. They had a huge secondary business line if they wanted to develop it. So suddenly, you've got a billion-dollar opportunity if you want it. Second example, there's a group of people in Tel Aviv in Israel who I've spent a bit of time with from a company called Windward that is using data from all sorts of sources to monitor ships on the ocean, like hundreds of thousands of vessels they're tracking using everything from satellite data to radio signals to um, data from the local ports. And they started out offering this as a service to intelligence agencies, to governments, so they could know what was moving around. And then they realized there's actually a huge demand for insurance because the insurers need to know a lot about the vessels. But just to give you an example of the granular data they have, um, a couple of years ago they were tracking this Bahamas registered ship. Now it's pretty easy to fly a ship under a false flag or to turn off the radio signal. So this is the route it was taking from Asia. It was going west around India. It's the orange sign until it stopped being tracked in the middle of the ocean. And then a different ship was picked up on the radio signal. And that seemed to carry on the same route, but went to the United Arab Emirates, did a drop-off near Dubai, came back out, and then the signal disappeared. So we don't know what was happening, but we know that they were trying to keep something secret. And that, of course, is data that is hugely valuable if you're trying to stop arms smuggling, drug smuggling, money laundering. Um, but what they're doing now for insurance companies is tracking the number of miles, nautical miles, each individual ship has done, how quickly they go into port. Of course, each of these is a determinant of their risk factor for getting into trouble. So this is a business that 10 years ago couldn't have existed. Now it's using data to find new business models around freight. The third company... It's more than 100 years old. It's a Swiss company called ABB. They make robots, they make industrial machinery, they make the transformers that every electricity company uses. And they've realized the way forward is to start putting data tracking devices in all their machinery. As automation grows, they will be able to sell extra services to the people who buy their factories. This is the chief innovation officer, Guido. They are putting in, for, in, for instance, in the gigantic transformers, ways to measure how long it's been in operation, the temperature. They can download to the customer at an extra cost new services. They're turning heavy analog machinery into data services. They're also making simulations using all this data, what they call the digital twin, of existing factories, which means you can go and simulate new ways of doing production without going to the expense of building. And of course, it's highly valuable, and it just shows the power of data to transform an existing industry. This is one of their transformers. They now collect from new modules they've put on them so they can tell when they're going to need servicing. And this is information they sell to the factory owner. The fourth company I was talking to last week is in Cambridge in the UK. It's called Prowler. It is an AI company, but unusually, they have three teams. They have one team that does probabilistic modeling. It takes today's data and sees what will happen in two months. They have a second team that uses artificial intelligence, reinforcement learning, to try and mine that data for bigger patterns. And then they have a third team that gets the other two teams together and tells them what decisions to make in real time. It's called a multi-agent systems team. And they're using game theory to say, in a fraction of a second, we've got all this data coming in, what do we do with it? And they're selling services, among other things, to logistics companies, to taxi companies to know where to put that cab in seven minutes because there are so many changing variables of demand that only a complex machine can tell you exactly what to do in terms of action. 
It's a whole new business opportunity. And the fifth company, I met a couple of the people last week, is a drone company that is already now transforming lives in places like Rwanda. It's called Zipline. It's delivering blood in places that are not easy to get to by road. This is just another of these signals of the future that says the idea of drones, the abstraction of drones, is now here, is now delivering to not just consumers buying stuff, to people who really need to get things who can't by conventional means. So these little signals are reminding me constantly that you can't relax based on last month's knowledge because this is all moving so quickly. The exponential curve, we know about Moore's law, we know about computer processing, doubling in capacity, halving in price every 18 months to two years, which hasn't yet reached the limits of physics. So we think we understand that it's affecting you know, processing and storage, which gradually comes down to zero. The same trend, that exponential curve, is hitting all sorts of other industrial sectors, the falling cost of solar panel-generated energy. Something in um, the 1970s, a panel would have cost about $100 per watt of solar energy. Now it's you know, pennies. So something that if you were running a utility was not really a threat is now a real everyday threat because of this doubling and doubling. The same is happening to the falling cost of batteries. If you needed governments to subsidize people's electric cars a couple of years ago, well, the falling cost of the battery is going to do that itself because of one of those curves. We have to be aware that these exponential curves doubling and doubling, moving faster and faster, are affecting the way we move things around the physical world and, um, as we saw with Sonar, the way we understand what's happening in the physical world. So, you know, this is a startup, one of a bunch of startups that are sending nano-satellites into the air. This one is called Planet. It's getting information that was previously invisible. Apple didn't want people poking around when it was building its Cupertino HQ, Planet satellites going around the world the whole time, sending back real-time images, their customers had access to this. As well as things I've mentioned, such as artificial intelligence and drones and satellites, there are a few other trends coalescing. There's ways of visualizing data in new ways, augmented reality and virtual reality, and tiny little sensors collecting data ubiquitously wherever we are. The editor of Wired when it launched in 1992, Kevin Kelly, wrote a cover story for US Wired um, a couple of months ago. Looking at where this is going to lead, he calls it the mirror world. He says we're going to get so many real-time streams of data, a bit like an exponential version of Google Street View. We're going to be tracking the physical world and creating an online simulation of that physical world. And it will be so detailed and accurate and rapidly updated that you will be able to go into the screen to not just see, but to experience all sorts of things in the physical world. So an immersive game, a science lesson at school, the ability to see what is happening to your cargo as it's the other side of the world, it will all be in this singular real-time data-led simulation. And we already started to get there, merging the, the physical and the digital worlds with games like Pokemon Go. But in five, maybe six or seven years, we're going to be simulating a lot more. And we just have to change our mindset. So I was quite excited to come here because there's um, a brilliant term Freight Waves has kind of put into more popular use, which is linking the technology with the need to take all these goods around the world. And freight tech is a wonderful investment opportunity, but also a big threat to existing ways of doing things and to the incumbents who think, we can wait, we've got time, we'll get there. We're making quarter-by-quarter quarter profits at the moment. Because if you look at the amount of investment, if you follow the money, 
There's an awful lot of smart money going into nimble, agile teams that see an opportunity and can run very quickly and can test the product and can iterate it and can move quickly. Now, you know, Freight Waves is a three-year-old fast-moving company, but there's a whole bunch of others out there in logistics. This is CB Insights. They um, are very good at tracking the startups who's been funded. Just looking at some of the examples on that table, you know, making supply chain more visible. Because the data is there. Why shouldn't we be able to get access to it? Just what's happening in trucking, the number of talented people going to work, not in a conventional company, but for these startups, the engineers, the machine learning specialists, the data visualization experts, because they see an opportunity. Because the money is going there. So just in trucking and the technology companies trying to reinvent trucking, it's a pretty solid upward curve. And we've seen where the VCs are spending their money. It was something like a doubling year on year in the sector the last time I looked. And, you know, some of the checks that are being written are pretty big checks. You know, this one got a billion dollars from SoftBank, which takes very, very bold risks on some of the sectors that are going to be powering the future infrastructure plays, data simulation plays. So this is a startup that's just raised a billion dollars. So what am I seeing in terms of the wider trends when I talk to my investor friends and my startup friends, when I go to visit the research labs at ETH in Zurich or at MIT? Um, I'm seeing some new certainties about what will dominate the next few years of this sector. Um, and I think they're exciting because they help get that physical product to the people who need it in a more efficient, quicker, cheaper, less polluting way if we use the data that is already being given out and find ways to optimize for it. So I'm going to give you a small number of suggestions of where the future is going to be. Um, the first one is the future is going to be much smarter because of machine learning going mainstream. So we use cloud storage at the moment to store our photos. We're going to use the cloud to access artificial intelligence, just as we use the plug in the wall to access electricity. And artificial intelligence is all sorts of things. It's one of these slightly terms that takes in human movements, tracking environmental signals, tracking vision. So you probably saw about three years ago, Amazon launched a version of the artificially intelligent powered store that they called Amazon Go. They had one in Seattle on an Amazon campus. And a lot of other retailers kind of snickered and thought this is a big tech company showing off. Until more recently, they announced there are going to be 3,000 of these. One's just opened in New York City. And so now if you're in retail and you're not enabling just walkout technology, you're left behind. Because it uses proximity sensors, computer vision. It knows who you are. You've got the app fired up in your phone. It trusts you to put the goods in your basket, you leave, then it bills you. Because people don't like friction, and the smart machine is solving that problem. So anywhere there is friction, we're going to move away. So AI is still relatively early and is just going mainstream. And you know, we start to think, well, maybe it's coming for some of our jobs. It's even coming for you if you're a musician. There are now algorithms making music that people like Warner think is good enough to put out there. I'm not a pessimist about what it means for jobs because I think there'll be a whole bunch more jobs created in this world that need the human skills that can work alongside the active machines. But 
make sure our education systems are training people for this world. So looking around in the logistics and the freight worlds, there's already a whole bunch of companies offering various versions of artificial intelligence, giving you predictive knowledge of what's likely to happen, helping you make actionable plans like Prowler has been doing, how to optimize inventory, taking so many data points that humans can't process and giving you an answer like that. Even McDonald's now is defining itself as an AI company. It's just spent $300 million on an Israeli AI company because it realized if it wants to get more people through those drive throughs if it wants to help customize products, it needs to be a smart machine company that happens to flip burgers. So the second certainty is there's going to be more data that becomes more usable and gives you more actionable insights. For my book, I saw a really interesting example of this in a place you wouldn't expect, in the villages of China, where the smart machine is now understanding in real time what Chinese consumers are buying. It's a project funded by Li Ka-shing, one of the richest men in Asia, who's partnered with the Chinese Post Service, a million workers, and they've put little point-of-sale devices in what will be a million village stores across China, so that in stores like this one which I visited, typically a village has just a couple of hundred people. For the first time, people are paying often with their smartphone because they get loyalty points and it's being scanned into the central database. And in real time, you can know what China is buying at scale. If you are a beer company and the weather's become really hot in a part of northeast China, you can use the database to know exactly how many crates to ship out there the next day. If you're Chanel, who wants to target women who buy Dior products, who live two to two and a half hours commute from the nearest city, on a Tuesday afternoon, you can send them a targeted discount code in the app. It's China, so they do things at scale. But when I was in those village stores and seeing the amount of data coming through, I thought, this is creating a whole new business model. And not just for the farmers who can now get their goods into the shop and it's scanned online and it's sold across China, the postman delivers them, but for the post office, which is redefining its role now as a database enabler. So I mentioned some of the nanosats. It's quite an interesting company called Orbital Insight that sells its data gathered by satellites to investors because it monitors the health of companies like this by counting cars in the parking lots of stores, of shopping malls, and using the algorithm to compare today with last month with similar-sized stores in other parts of the country. And it turns out that the number of cars is a leading indicator of where the share price is going to go. So this is JCPenney's share price, and the car count seemed to predict that they were going to have a hard time. And again, this data was always there, until recently, we didn't have the tools to access it to make decisions. So we're going to see a lot more successful startups building market share around making things, well, transparent, as the theme of the day is, creating visibility. We will find more startups growing by creating simplicity in this complicated world removing friction because they have the data that creates the optimal path for each individual customer with transparent pricing and no unnecessary complications. We are already seeing, I mean, there are thousands of startups like this. I'm just showing you some of those I found particularly interesting. Four kites showing you hundreds of thousands of active loads on their network, 40,000 shipment delays predicted. This is a wonderful business 
useful information that we wouldn't have had before. We're going to see a certainty of more logistics without human beings pushing the vehicles. So autonomous travel gets interesting. And the ships, we're now seeing startups like Starscree Robotics putting to fairly advanced tests now its autonomous trucks. You don't have to be Uber to have the budget to do this. And these are going to be safer. They're going to save lives because there's less opportunity for human error. I'm seeing startups that are using LiDAR to help navigate the car. This is a startup called Luminar, started by a kid who got into Stanford age 16. Austin Russell then dropped out when Peter Thiel gave him a chunk of money. He's still early 20s, and he has taken on some of the big incumbents with a very, very effective, low-cost, high-granular-definition way of measuring what's around. And we're going to get quirky things that we didn't really predict. We're going to get startups, mostly startups that won't succeed, taking this technology and testing it. There's a, a fun one I saw at a company called Wheelies that makes the autonomous grocery store. So if you have the munchies in the middle of the night, if you suddenly need a pizza or a beer, you click on the app and the grocery store will come to you. Maybe that's the future. But it's coming and it's not just going to be trucks. It's not just going to be cars. It's already going to be, you know, trains and ships and all sorts of things. You probably saw that Rolls-Royce got very excited that it was working on technology to create um, autonomous shipping, which I completely bought until they put out one of their videos with some really, really bad acting showing what would happen when something went wrong. We are looking at a vessel with possible propulsion motor failure. We need to decide whether she can sail to port with both motors or if she needs to shut down the other shaft line. Judging by the motor sound, I'm suspecting a failed feedback sensor. If this is the future, we it has to be better acted. I'm sorry, I can't do it. And the future is going to be integrated. It's going to be multimodal, but it's going to be just making stuff work, just getting rid of the pollution, getting rid of the waste, and using the capacity and making it clear how to optimize the capacity. I mean, Convoy is using the human beings driving the trucks, but it's trying to give them much more efficient ways to use their work time. So we've talked about some of the relatively new companies getting quite a lot of funding. There's some pretty big new IPO companies that are already putting a lot of money into logistics, freight, autonomy together. So Uber is very aggressively moving into this space. It bought a company called Otto, self-driving trucks. It's now creating new businesses around freight because it sees the scale of the opportunity. This is just the beginning. It's not too late to join in. And I guess something else you're hearing a lot the last couple of days is this word, which makes skeptical because there have been a lot of unfulfilled promises about what the blockchain is going to do to transform worlds and people interpreting blockchain as a way to separate people from their money through initial coin offerings. It's actually starting, it's just the early stages to show a real utility because, again, it's take data at scale in real time, use it to create simplicity and trust and accessibility. Companies like Dexrate have already started to prove it. There's an Israeli logchain that's already been using it in shipping. There's a whole bunch of companies. I can't tell you which of them are going to make it. But I know the sector as a whole is going to be pretty important over a three to five year scale. So this is Freight, FR8, talking about the inefficiencies there. 
20% of a shipment's cost being spent on paperwork because not everything is coordinated. So they've come up with a protocol, different layers, all using the crypto advantages of the blockchain. Watch this space, ignore the hype. There are some really important things about to happen. And again, I can't tell you whether you know, block freight is anywhere near reaching its mission. Maybe it's going to be the big companies like Microsoft that try and own it. But the money is going towards these blockchain companies more and more each year. I'm going to leave you with something I think all of us need if we're going to make this transition into the digital disruptive future. And that's in any organization, are we mentally prepared for what's happening, for the need to keep changing position even when we're getting comfortable? And it comes down to leading the culture of an organization. But my book, with the root title, was looking for innovators that weren't simply giving the problem to a head of innovation in another building or investing in a couple of startups in an accelerator. But they were preparing their company for the opportunities tomorrow. So many companies are just ticking the box and going through what I call innovation theater. It looks good to the shareholders that we seem to be doing something, but we're quite happy with today's business. I see a lot of big, successful companies in businesses ranging from manufacturing to media that remind me of the Roadrunner cartoon when he chases Wiley Coyote off the cliff and he keeps running until he realizes he's not been on solid ground for a while and then he falls. So I will say what we're all trying to be is this. to get all the data, all the sensor-enabled material there, to get the team working and delivering the solution really quickly. Down to creating a way in our organizations to access that data, to use it, to make decisions, to work together, to help the customer just get stuff done. And before you think that data is only starting to be relevant in some sectors. Data is in every sector now. It's now even in the wine and whiskey sector. There's a startup in San Francisco that I got it's called Endless West, run by these guys, who were reverse engineering the molecular structure of wine in the lab to create synthetic molecule, plant molecule-based alternatives, because they've got the odor, the viscosity, the alcohol content, and they're turning wine and whiskey into data. And it doesn't taste bad, but don't say this to French people because they get very, very upset. So I will leave you with one of the things that could slow us down here, and that's our human biases. Because we're used to certain ways of doing things, we get maybe a bit scared of something that's not familiar. That first time you are in the completely autonomous vehicle is going to be weird before it becomes the norm. I don't know how many of you have been in a car that's been set to completely autonomous mode. There's a guy called Bill Rimmer who put his mother in his Tesla and filmed her reaction. And you know, like the second or third time, it's just going to be a way to go to see her friends to play bridge. So just think when this thing came out, there was the head of a big tech company that was making smartphones that was asked about it on on TV. um, And he was a bit dismissive. $500 fully subsidized with a plan? I said, that is the most expensive phone in the world, and it doesn't appeal to business customers because it doesn't have a keyboard, which makes it not a very good email machine. How did that work out, Steve Ballmer of uh, Microsoft? Um, With the fact that for all this data, for all this AI, for all this tech, we are deeply irrational 
biased human creatures. Um, Somebody put on the chat forum Reddit a couple of years ago a question that caught my eye. If somebody from the 1950s suddenly came back today, what would be the hardest thing to explain to them about modern life? And my favorite answer was, I have a device in my pocket that's capable of accessing the entirety of information known to man, and I use it to look at pictures of cats and to get into arguments with strangers. (laughs) I leave you with your complete irrationality. Thank you very much. any of you have um, posted some questions through the devices, and I'll go through as many as I can. Um, I'm reading them off a screen here. One of the questions is, what characteristics do I look for most in determining if an entrepreneur or an idea is legitimate? So this is something that has caused me a great deal of pain, because as a very early stage investor, I have learned that much of the time, if not most of the time, that money is not coming back, and it's a painful lesson. And through my pain, I think I'm now consistently asking a number of questions. Number one, what is motivating this person or this team to do something impossibly difficult that's likely to fail that kind of ignores the way things are done? And they have to have itch they're scratching that is more than just about making money or having an exit. Is it a real problem that they're trying to solve? I don't need to see another laundry app. I want to see people like Zipline who are doing something that the world needs. And three, how big is the market? There's no point coming up with a perfect product for a very, very small niche. It has to be scalable, which is why I think freight is so important. Somebody's asked, what is your definition of culture and how important is it with early-stage companies? Culture is another way of saying our mission, our purpose, our value system, our ethics. And that matters, especially for early-stage companies, because you're fighting a battle to attract talent who can go to a company that's already more established. Why will they join you? And why will they join you probably for less money than those bigger companies will pay them. Um, What is it that they will believe in that you can offer them? And that comes from the top, from the founding team. And if you take a shortcut, you will be found out. There's been a bit of a challenge inside Silicon Valley that the media has not been very critical and companies like Theranos have got away with too much. We're starting to wake up to the ethical questions around what some of the big social networks are doing what some of the big AI companies are doing. The companies that are going to be resilient and survive have clarity from the top about what they stand for and I think where they will say, no, this may make some money, but it's not right for us. Somebody asks, what new technology are you excited about that we haven't heard about yet? Well, it's a slightly unfair question because it's a pretty informed audience and you know an awful lot. But I'll tell you something that I've got excited about that has not yet gone mainstream. And a professor from Australia came to dinner at my house on Monday this week. Um, His name is Mark Kendall. And he has a history in helping invent medical monitoring devices. And he's working through his company called Wear Optimo in Australia, in Brisbane. He's working on little patches that you put on your skin that go just below the level, but you don't feel it. And they monitor tiny, tiny changes inside your skin, inside your blood, that can, for instance, predict when you're likely, whether you're likely to have a heart attack, to give you that extra time to get treated to prevent it, to stop it causing massive damage. And the human body is giving out tons of data that we are completely ignoring. And I think in our lifetimes, there will be so many medical problems, if not solved, then put under control by these sorts of sensors. So I'm quite excited about that.
Thank you. We humans have to fight back. Is it not true that industries like AI and autonomous vehicles are finding it's a bit more complex than originally thought about being human and replicating that? For instance, how easy is it to prove you are not a bot via capture? Capture these days is mostly us training the autonomous driving systems to recognize a traffic light or a cat running across the road. So we are doing the AI's work. We need to rebel. Um, a lot was overpromised about AI. When Google bought DeepMind about four or five years ago, a London-based research lab, they were talking about trying to build general artificial intelligence. Not the very specific way of solving a problem, but the way to think like a person whenever confronted with a new situation. And people got scared. They had these debates about, do we want the AI being smarter than us? It may not need humans at all in its great plan. Um, it turns out that DeepMind isn't anywhere close to building that general AI but it is being very effective at helping fine-tune the YouTube algorithms, at helping Google optimize the energy utilization on its servers. So I'm a journalist. I'm kind of skeptical about hype. I look at where things are going in the short to medium term and the potential and the ethical questions around it. But AI is not suddenly going to get rid of all our jobs it's going to help solve problems like a lot of cars hit people because the driver is distracted or on the phone or maybe a bit drunk. Can we solve that problem by automating the process? Maybe can we lead to less individual car ownership because there will be a reliable autonomous transport network wherever we find ourselves because logistics and data and automation make that happen. Somebody asks, you mentioned Zipline, but do you think full-scale drone delivery will be a reality in the next 10 years? Which country will adopt it first? So this is where regulation can either slow things down or accelerate. I was in Dubai. One of the chapters in my book is how the United Arab Emirates is trying to shift its business model from oil dependency to some of the newer industries. And they are making an active push to attract the Hyperloop type companies, the companies taking the big risks in new, for new forms of transportation and making drone licensing um, easy. So I think there will be some places where the regulators trust the entrepreneurs. One of the risks is most of the drone technology at the moment that's used by consumers is Chinese. There's a big company called DJI in Shenzhen that dominates the consumer market. And there are questions about whether we want Chinese databases knowing what's happening with logistics in other parts of the world. But drone delivery is coming. It's starting out as a few marketing stunts by pizza companies, but it will get to places where it's harder to get physical road-based travel. Um, and I don't think we know yet where the demand is going to be. But I'm from a country called Britain, which is looking for a new identity because it seems to have got itself into a bit of a mess. If I was my government, I would say, how can we go out of our way to be helpful to some of these new industries? Because that will create growth. Probably one or two more quick questions. What percentage of revenue should incumbent companies be investing in disruptive technologies? So there's some assumptions in that question that you can disrupt yourself by putting a certain amount of money aside and it's a bit like having the separate building the other side of town for your innovation projects. Um, it doesn't really work like that. You have to get the board, the leadership, 
decision-making team, bringing in the whole company, including people at the very, very lower rungs of a hierarchy, feeling that they are part of this project because they are the ones who hear what the customers are doing on the streets every day, what their changing demands are. And sure, you need to invest generously in building the businesses that may not be here for five years. One of my case studies in my book is a software company called Autodesk that spends maybe 10% on businesses that are five to 10 years from fruition that may be wasted money. It may go nowhere. But through playing and observing stuff that they didn't think they were looking for, they've created new AI ways to help designers use their products. It's called generative design, which is going to be a billion-dollar new product line for them. So I think rather than say this is our budget for innovation, create a culture and a mindset where you can start to look for things that you don't think you're looking for and bring the entire team with you because your best resources are your internal talent. And with that, um, I will thank you for your time. I will be out there in a few minutes, and if you can get hold of one of the books, I may even sign it, which will lower its value. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed that one, come back for more. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are heard around the world. To get all your FreightWaves news, follow on Twitter at FreightWaves, at FreightCast, and at Timothy Dooner. That's D-O-O-N-E-R. Until next week.